I think that the Snowden revelations made it clear that the tools need to be easy to use. Every journalist, every source can't be a technology expert. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, Executive Editor for News, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined in the studio by Jenna McLaughlin and Elias Grohl. Jenna is FP's intelligence reporter, focusing on the culture, dynamics, and events happening in the National Security Agency, the Central Intelligence Agency, and the other 15 members of the intelligence community. Plus, the way sensitive information they gather and analyze informs and directs the White House and policymakers on the Hill. Elias is an FP staff writer covering cyberspace and its conflicts and controversies. Joining us by phone is Micah Lee. Micah is a computer security engineer and open source software developer. He writes about technical topics like digital and operational security, encryption, tools, whistleblowing, and hacking for The Intercept at First Lake Media. ER fans, we love hearing from you. Have episode ideas or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at forumpolicy.com. So this week at Foreign Policy, we're releasing our Secure Drop page, which is a way that allows people to anonymously and securely share documents, information with newsrooms. Uh, A number of newsrooms, including The Intercept and New York Times, use this, and now Foreign Policy. And so I want to start off actually just talking about why it exists and how it exists. Micah, can you tell us a little bit about the history of SecureDrop and how it evolved and how it's been used now in newsrooms? Yeah, definitely. In the uh, you know pre-internet age, journalism worked very differently than it works now. And uh, sources contacting journalists had different uh, threat models, they had different problems that they were facing. And so back then, it was like way easier to go to a payphone to call a journalist and remain anonymous. But now with the internet and with uh, mass surveillance, it's really hard for sources to contact journalists anonymously at all. And so it's not, so journalists can't just refuse to give up their source if, if they're asked to, because just the fact that they're emailing with the source or sending text messages to a source gives up their source for them. And so Around 2011, I believe, the uh, internet activist uh, Aaron Swartz uh, was thinking about this problem, and he wrote a piece of software called DeadDrop, which was the early version of SecureDrop. And basically, it is a system for sources to be able to go to a news organization and submit documents and uh, send questions in such a way that if, even if... uh, uh, everyone is being monitored on the internet, which everyone is being monitored on the internet, they would still maintain their anonymity. And so now, SecureDrop is uh, maintained by Freedom of the Press Foundation, and it's improved a whole lot uh, over the years since then, and lots of people are using it. And how does it work in practice? So, Janet, why don't you tell us, you know, if someone wants to provide documents or information and use it, what do they actually have to do? Right. So if a source wants to send something through SecureDrop, it's relatively easy on their end um, using a secure connection. And I'm sure Micah can explain a little bit more about that. Um, They can log on to our webpage and go into the system and they get a random username assigned to them, which is different than the one that we see on the journalist end. And you can click and attach a document, you can send a message, and you're on your way. You hit send. And um, you can use that username that you were given to check back in to see if the journalist has responded to you. 
Mm-hmm. And Micah, why is this, you know, so someone, it, it, there are a couple steps to it, that the person who wants to submit documents has to use Tor for anonymous browsing. What are the advantages of SecureDrop as opposed to, um, let's say, just using, a, you know, an anonymous encrypted email account or if both sides use ProtonMail, another form of encryption? What, what are the advantages of this system? The advantages are if the source wants to actually... Uh, be anonymous, and not necessarily be anonymous from, you know, you, the journalist, but just wants to make it so that, uh, you know, their employer or, uh, or or the government that's eavesdropping on people isn't able to tell that they're a source. Um, they have to do, and, and, and you know, they want, they, let's say that they want to leak to you, but they don't uh, have a lot of technical skills, and they don't really understand all of the operational security stuff that they have to take, uh, it's really easy to make mistakes. And so it's really easy to... So so first, like, let's say that they wanted to use encrypted email. First, they have to understand what encrypted email is, learn how to use it, figure out how to make an email address anonymously, and go through all of these hoops. But with SecureDrop, they just go to your website, read some simple instructions, and then just do it. And so basically, it makes it so that it's much, much, much more difficult for sources to make uh, security mistakes just because they they aren't experts. Mm-hmm. Elias, how have you seen this used? I mean, looking at how other newsrooms have used it, do you think that the advent of SecureDrop has actually changed reporting? I think so. I mean, you're definitely talking to you know journalists in, in Washington. They're not they're not very eager to give up the origin of their. Uh, you know, their stories, right? But you're definitely you're having you're having documents coming through these systems, absolutely. Uh, and this is um, you know it's changing the way that national security reporting is being done in many ways. And and for people who have been doing this work for a long time, you know, it's never been more difficult to be a national security reporter in Washington than it is today. The Justice Department is going after leakers in a very aggressive way, and this is something that's been happening, um, you know since the Obama administration and the Trump administration has apparently only intensified that. But the really interesting thing that you see in the security community now, you know, from technologists working on this issue is, you know, typically there was this trade-off between, you know, usability and security where the more secure a system was, the less usable it was going to be. And so actual, you know, uh, communication security was often extremely difficult to achieve. And now you're seeing so much interesting innovation in this space where, really strong, secure systems are also becoming quite easy to use through uh, secure uh, text apps like uh, Signal, for example, and now SecureDrop here, where you have a system that's really built around uh, security as its main prior, as its sort of main function, but at the same time is also really easy to use and is difficult to, as Micah explained, kind of get wrong, where you do something wrong and you might inadvertently reveal your own identity. And that's, I think, the really important innovation uh, with a system like SecureDrop, at least in its current iteration. The thing about SecureDrop is, in a way, it does sort of encourage people to leak anonymously. And Jenna, you and I, we've had a lot of discussions about does, does, I mean, 
does the motivation of sources matter? And thus, does knowing, even if we don't reveal the source, that we know the source's identity matter? Um, so let's take a couple examples. There was, of course, the New York Times published um, one year of uh, President Trump's tax returns that were mailed to them anonymously. So they don't know. I mean, you can sort of guess, but they don't know the motivation of the leaker. But for us in the national security realm, what, what considerations or even sort of hesitations do you have about not knowing a source's identity if that's the case? Absolutely. I mean, for me, the very first concern is authenticity. Is the information that's being given to me anonymously something that I can trust is real and hasn't been tampered with at all? Um, and certainly there could be motivations where someone would want to expose information that could be dangerous in a way that I hadn't previously considered, especially if I don't know what job they're working or uh, what position other folks that might have been touched by that information might might be aware of. So, I mean, you you need, especially in the national security space, to verify a lot of this information. And there are certainly pitfalls to doing that. You might inadvertently contact the source's employer and send them on a trail to that information or something like that. Um, and, and that's a little bit worrying sometimes. I mean, Micah, what do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, you know, let's say it's a political opponent um, sending in dirt on their, you know, on someone they're campaigning against. And it, it say it's true that it's authenticated. Is it important that we know that this was, and we wouldn't necessarily with secure drop, quite obviously. Um, do, do you think it matters or is there any danger in giving sources the ability um, or almost sort of encouraging them to, to be anonymous? Is, is that something that worries you at all? I mean, I think that it's definitely more useful for journalists to know the identity of their source. And with SecureDrop, you, I think that it does kind of encourage uh, sources to remain completely anonymous, but a lot of times sources don't remain anonymous to the journalist. A lot of times, like, you know, when the journalist is talking to the source, the source gives them enough information to be able to verify the documents and to know who they are, um, but, but that definitely isn't, isn't the, the whole case. Um, and I mean, I think that, that, yeah, the motives are important, and I think that reporting on motives are important, and, you know, you want to make sure that, as journalists, you're not being a tool for somebody's, like, political gain. Um, but on the other hand, I think that the most important question to ask is, are the, you know, documents or the information that you're receiving, is it legitimate, is it real, and is it newsworthy? Because even if the source does have some sort of nefarious motives, um, if it's actually in the public interest and it will actually like inform debate, then that's uh, that's that's pretty important. That's the job of journalists. Right. Uh, I mean, the, the classic that, right? example was Mark Felt, uh, you know, deep throat with the Watergate scandal. He certainly didn't have pure motives. He was looking for career advancement, but that didn't mean that the information he gave out wasn't newsworthy. You know, one of the things that's funny for me, and, I, and maybe I'm just biased on this, is that there, you know, with all of the emphasis on encryption, which I think is a really good thing, but I almost feel like when you look at some people's Twitter um, account, there's almost sort of a techno fetishism in some sense, like as if substituting technology for real security. Like, I've got PGP and I've got Signal, I've got this, I've got that. And and people using that as a way. I mean, am I alone in, in worrying about that, that we sort of substitute um, technological advancement for sort of basic journalistic practice on keeping sources secure? Absolutely. I mean, it's... So when you talk to security experts about, you know, the the, the all the innovations of 
uh, strong end-to-end encryption systems, you can have the most sophisticated scheme in place, let's say, to communicate on some, you know, with somebody uh, via your phone, right? Uh, but let's say uh, either one of those phones has been compromised by somebody who's just able to take periodic screenshots, of the images that are being displayed on your phone, uh, a very simple way to surveil someone, uh, then your entire extremely sophisticated security scheme has been blo- has been blown up. Right. Right. And it's a um, really sophisticated schemes can be undermined in really simple ways. And so, you know, what a lot of these security systems are doing is, you know, they're 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 shifting the risk onto you know one particular system. Uh, or one particular device where you have to really be sure that that device that you are using is absolutely secure. Uh, so it can be, I think you're right in saying that, that the systems can be a little bit intoxicating. Um, because in one sense, you know, when you're working with a system like this, it's, um, it's, it's very intriguing. You're like, oh, man, I'm encrypting all of this. I'm, I'm, I'm generating this gobbledygook that's coming out. Like, you know, you, 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 take a, you take a piece of information and you encrypt it against the PGB key and you get this just junk that comes out. And then through a bit of mathematical magic, you might say, uh, you get it back into clear text. And it's very spooky in a way, if you will. <laughs> uh, and... One shouldn't put too much stock in it, and I think you're right to caution. I, I totally agree, and I think that there's a lot of elements to you know good security and good communication security that have nothing to do with like how the encryption works or what apps you're using or things like that. And so, like if you uh, you know go to a secure drop landing page, it's going to tell you a lot of things. Like, don't use your work computer; instead, use a personal computer. Just because if you use your work computer, a lot of work computers have spyware on them. A lot of employers spy on their on their employees' laptops. And so if you use your work computer, even if you're using Tor and Secure Drop and all sorts of stuff, uh, you you could that that could easily just be a big mistake. And there's also like, you know, making sure that you use uh, like don't use your work internet connection, like go to a public Wi Fi uh, place, like a coffee shop, because um, a lot of work networks are being monitored as well and you know, you have a lot more anonymity at a coffee shop. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of, like, kind of operational security stuff that uh, sources need to be aware of and journalists need to be aware of and need to do that have nothing to do with technology, that have, that have more to do with uh, just, just, you know, thinking about the different ways that, the different, like, simple ways that, that everything can break down and accounting for those. But there are so many ways to mess up. I mean, one of the things that I remember from the Paula Broadwell, David Petraeus episode was that Paula Broadwell, who had been sending sort of semi-threatening emails uh, to this woman in Florida, she had used an anonymous email account um, on public Wi-Fi, I think at a coffee shop, but then on that same public Wi-Fi had been signing into her personal Gmail and this email that she used with David Petraeus. And so the FBI had sort of pulled all of them. Um, Let's talk actually for a moment, though, about an, an encrypted email, about PGP. You know, we, we certainly we got training on it in the Foreign Policy Office. But like a lot of reporters, and I'm seeing, again, this more and more, um, reporters are going towards proton mail, which I know it has its downsides, but it just seems like that's by default. Um, unless there's IT support, a lot of reporters are just finding the PGP suite unusable. I, Michael, what are your thoughts on that? Is it too hard to use? Is it a mistake to use proton mail? 
So ProtonDAO is very easy to use. PGP yes. is very hard to use. Yes. Um, PGP is notoriously hard to use, and it's been around Why? since the 90s, and it hasn't really got, it's gotten like a little bit better, but you still can't use it without, you know, understanding what a public key is, what a secret key is, how signatures work and verification and key servers and and, you know, you, you, you go through a two-hour training, and you finally are all set up, and then you're like, okay, I need to email somebody new. I don't know whether a public key, what do I do? What are all the ways we can I go wrong? I have more than and once so, received someone's private keys, their secret keys. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, I, this is one of the reasons why I'm really happy about, you know, things like Signal, um, where it's... PGP is less important. It, it used to be that there wasn't really any other options, but now there's some other options. And so, so yeah, I think that using encrypted messaging apps is a great way to use encryption without having to, like, you know, like, smash your head on your keyboard trying to figure out PGP. But, I mean, it's, once you have it set up, it's, 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 not, it's not the worst once you're, you're comfortable with it. Like, at The Intercept, everybody uses PGP internally for, for nearly all of our internal email, and we also use it with a lot of outside people. But I think that we're, like, an exception, and we're just used to it at this point, but it's still is very annoying. Um, but so in terms of ProtonMail, ProtonMail is great because it's really easy to use. Right. But there's like a couple of downsides compared to just normal PGP. And uh, one of them is that uh, your email is only encrypted. Uh, it's only end-to-end encrypted when you email other ProtonMail users. So if one person is using ProtonMail and one person is using Gmail, that email isn't encrypted. Right. And then, so, so, you know, if you really want the encryption, everyone has to be using the same service. And then you also have to, like, put a little bit more of your trust into the service because ProtonMail has the ability, uh, like, they, you know, they promise that they're not going to, but they have the technical ability of uh, spying on you, basically. Because when you are, you know, in ProtonMail and you're typing an email and you click send to another ProtonMail user, what's happening is, inside of your web browser, you're actually encrypting that message to the other person's public key and then sending the encrypted message to the server to send it. But how do you know the other person's public key? It's, it's possible for ProtonMail to lie to you and say, here's the other person's public key, and it's actually like an attacker's public key. And I don't think that ProtonMail is doing this, but it's definitely like if, if they were like compelled to. By law enforcement. Yeah, which is, you know, and they're in, they're in Switzerland, and they have strong privacy laws, and that's, like, why they decided to be based there. But basically, like, at this point, you're, you're relying on, on laws to protect you instead of relying on technology to protect you. That's an important distinction. Yeah. You're also relying on technology, because the technology is pretty good, but, but, but you know, like, if, if, they, if they were forced to, or if someone, a ProtonMail employee, were malicious or something... They could facilitate attacking your encryption, where that's not quite true with the with a normal PGP. So let's talk about Signal for a second. Um, for those people who aren't familiar with it, what is it? How does it work? And and it is quite easy. I mean, we can all testify to that. Why is it becoming sort of the default that journalists um, are often using to communicate both with each other and with sources? Um, so Signal is a encrypted messaging app. It's for iPhone and for Android. And uh, it's, uh, it's it's very easy to use. And it was one of the very it was one of the first uh, like very easy to use encryption uh, app messaging apps. And it also uh, lets you have voice calls and video calls, um, all end-to-end encrypted. Um, and the way that it works is you just go to the app store or to the Play Store and download the Signal app. 
and then uh, you have to register your phone number with it. And once you register your phone number, everyone in your phone's address book uh, that also uses Signal, you could just send them encrypted messages. Um, and it's great, and it's so much simpler. There's all of this complicated encryption going on in the background, but it's completely invisible. You don't have to, you don't have to see it. Um, and seeing it is kind of is, is kind of fun. Like with PGP, it's very magical. But it's really nice to just have just you know have a texting app that just works and is secure. Yeah, I sort of enjoy seeing which of my contacts is on. I mean, people that I wouldn't expect yeah. to use Signal suddenly <laughs> finding them there. That that's always been very interesting. It's always a funny moment when uh, some somebody working in the uh, Trump administration who's in your contact book uh, downloads Signal and you get a little push alert. Oh, so and so in the White House is now on Signal, and you think, oh well, this is an intriguing moment. I wonder what this person has to say now. Well, what are the alternative? I mean, Elias, you uh, co-wrote an article the other week on Wicker, which is another secure mm-hmm. messaging app, which also had some interesting investment from Eric Prince. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's a whole host of these interesting. Uh, it's Secure communications apps out there. Wicker is another one of them. Um, it's uh, this is a, another secure communications app, but it's now being marketed more towards businesses. It's sort of a, a Slack plus security is how they're marketing themselves. Uh, they've been uh, they've gotten some money from Eric Prince, uh, which we wrote about last week, uh, the uh, infamous Blackwater founder. Uh, and the thing is. Um, you know, when you think about uh, somebody like Eric Prince investing in a company like Wicker, you start to realize, well, uh, you know, freedom of information activists and mercenaries actually have some of the same interests when it comes to secure communications. It's one of those strange ironies of the world, because if you're somebody working for a Blackwater or similar organization and you're out there in the world operating in what you might describe as a hostile environment, uh, you do have the need to uh, communicate securely with somebody. And strong encryption is one way to do that. And to return to Signal for a minute, Signal got some of its initial seed funding uh, from the State Department as a result of uh, Hillary Clinton's internet freedom agenda during uh, and in the run-up and immediate aftermath to the Arab Spring. Um, technologies such as these were thought of as a way uh, to empower activists on the ground in repressive societies to communicate with one another outside of you know the spying eye of, let's say, the Egyptian secret police. And this was going to empower grassroots movements, which arguably you know, technologies like these have. And now that these technologies are also uh, are getting much broader adoption in the United States, it's slightly ironic because I think a lot of national security officials in Washington who maybe at one point promoted these technologies as a way to advance American foreign policy agendas abroad and empower grassroots activists, et cetera, et cetera, are now seeing individuals within their own bureaucracy use these same technologies to leak to journalists in the United States, uh, which I think is an irony that maybe they themselves hadn't quite anticipated. Tor is also similar. Tor has received a lot of State Department funding, and Tor is the technology that Secured Off is based on. Right. I mean, Tor was developed, uh, I think, right, as a, if I'm remembering my history right, it was uh, the basis of a, a secure communication system for the Navy, I think. Yeah, uh, Navy scientists were some of the early people who were uh, who were figuring it out. But it's been a uh, a nonprofit organization that has just gotten some government funding, but some other funding since I think like the early two thousands. 
Micah, it feels like the technology, um, particularly for journalists, is evolving really quickly. I came back. I had been out of the United States for about a year and a half and came back in November of 2014 to The Intercept. And and suddenly a lot of people, you know, for the first time, national security journalists, I mean, just over the past, you know, maybe 18 months had started using encrypted email. Remember my first day at The Intercept, I was handed a cryptophone, which uh, we never used. Um, Quickly, we started moving to Silent Circle and then Signal. Already, I feel like not as many people are using Silent Circle. Do you still feel they're going to be very quick evolutions or are people going to sort of settle on Signal and, and maybe something else? I mean, where do you see things going in the next two years? Um, so I think that one of the reasons why there was this explosion of journalist security technology really was the Snowden revelation. Of course, yeah, I think that, absolutely. Right? absolutely. I think that it was like this happened and then like all of these technologists saw this major need and, and I think the big shift, that, so there's been people who have been like internet privacy activists who have been pushing for this stuff for a long time and developing secure tools for a long time, but I think that the Snowden revelations made it clear that the tools need to be easy to use and that, like, you know, every journalist, every source can't be a technology expert. And so so I think that that's why sort of, uh, you know, the the marketplace was flooded with new apps and new, and new uh, technologies to do this. Um, I think that right now I've been seeing, like, things sort of standardizing around mostly Signal for, uh, like, encrypted messaging and phone calls. Um, but there are still a lot of other apps in the space, what's going to happen in the next couple years? I mean, I think that Signal is going to get improved. I think that there's going to be more, you know, more competitors. I think SecureDrop is actually going to get improved a lot. But yeah, I mean, it's hard to tell. I I kind of have a bias towards open source uh, tools like SecureDrop and like Signal because uh, they're more easy for experts to trust because experts can can tell exactly what they're doing. And so hopefully whatever whatever happens, uh, you know, open source security tools remain popular. Jenna, how much, you know, on, on the one hand, we've seen an explosion in the tools that are available for journalists to help keep themselves and their sources secure. But it feels like also we're sort of in a race against an increasing number of prosecutions and investigations into leaks. Um, is the technology helping? Um, you know, I mean, we can only hope so to a certain extent. I mean, with things like Signal, you see companies like Zerodium offering a million dollars for hacks into iPhones. You never know what other governments are going to do with things like that, um, whether or not Signal and things like that will be penetrated. Um, I think they're certainly helping the more and more people that use them and the more sources that use them and also, you know, don't make these security errors and think about meeting with journalists in real life, actually, in a place where they won't be spotted, um, having some training on kind of ditching a tail in case you're being followed. I mean, that's something that I've considered. Certainly, it can't just be digital things. If everything is digital and all the information information is exchanged digitally, I think that there's more of a trail for things like the Justice Department to track. What about not having loud conversations in famous D.C. state yeah, houses exactly. about, you know, classified Russian investigations? Although, I mean, that's the kind of thing that us journalists love to happen. Um, I can see but, the expense account reports next right, month. Right, exactly. Well, let's t- so let's talk about in terms of foreign policy readers. I mean, The Intercept, 
occupies a really great space in terms of journalism, which is different than foreign policy. And I think Snowden and what he did inspired other people to come forward. I mean, foreign policy in many ways, we're, you know, we're not solely D.C. focused, but we are focused on national security and foreign policy institutions. What would be the types of things that you might be interested in seeing or the types of things you would hope to see um, you know, through Secure Drop. I mean, what what are sort of the areas and stories you're working on lately? Right. I mean, I think that we would just love to continue to see some of the same tips that we get right now. Um, people in various agencies who have concerns about either procedural things going on in their agencies. I just did a story about the CIA and how there are concerns that Director Mike Pompeo is um, not prioritizing diversity efforts. Um, things like that that aren't classified but are really interesting. And we might be able to kind of verify with other sources that we already have. We'd be interested in certain documents. I know that we love State Department stories, things that relate to efforts that we're looking at overseas. Me working on the intelligence community, I'm interested in how the IC and its partners are looking at the problem of North Korea, how we're dealing with the sanctions towards Iran. I mean, there are countless different things that connect to foreign policy and the things that our readers are interested in, um, but also information that exists within the government or people that work with the government now. And of course, Jared Kushner's off the record remarks that you got sure. from Capitol Hill. That was <laughs> Interns always... are welcome in our secure job. Elias, what about you? What sort of stories are you working on lately? Well, I mean, recently, uh, God, I mean, North Korea is top of mind right now, right? Uh, you know, given Trump's comments yesterday, um, you know, we've got a big, there's a big meeting happening this afternoon at the UN uh, about uh, internet freedom issues and uh, terrorist use of the internet. You have a big push by the British government to try to crack down on extremist presence uh, on the internet. Uh, if anyone's sitting on any documents uh, about what the U.S. government is doing with regard to ISIS's presence online, please send them our way. We would love to know. I think this is something that uh, is of extreme public interest, where you have this you have this platform that's revolutionized the way that people are communicating and has now become integrated into this really unprecedented insurgent campaign, and the U.S. government doesn't know what to do about it and is really struggling with what to do about it. And you're now seeing this confrontation between a monopolistic industry in the American technology sector and the U.S. government trying to figure out what to do about how these insurgent groups are operating on the internet. It's one of the stories of our time. Thank you. Well, ER fans, we love hearing from you. So if you have episode ideas or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. You can also go to our website to check out both our new Secure Drop page um, and also look for ways to contact us uh, through Proton Mail, through Signal, and to contact our reporters. It's on our website on how to contact foreign policy securely and anonymously. Micah, thank you for joining us from California. And thank you, guys. Thanks. Thank you. You've been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm Sharon Weinberger, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.